Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Commons People, the Huffington Post politics podcast. With me, Owen Bennett, Paul Waugh and Ned Simons. This week we'll be talking about Prime Minister's past, present and future. Let's kick off by talking about the Chilcot Report. Yes, after about eight years, yesterday the Chilcot Report was finally published. Here is Sir John introducing a part of it. We have concluded that the UK chose to join the invasion of Iraq before the peaceful options for disarmament had been exhausted. Military action at that time was not a last resort. We have also concluded that the judgments about the severity of the threat posed by Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, WMD, were presented with a certainty that was not justified. After the report came out, some families of um, armed services who unfortunately died in the conflict gave their reaction. And here's a very passionate response to the um, accusations made against Tony Blair. And there is one terrorist in this world that the world needs to be aware of, and his name is Tony Blair, yeah. the world's worst terrorist. The former Labour leader himself gave a marathon two-hour press conference yesterday where he kind of apologised and kind of didn't for the Iraq war. Here's him talking directly to the nation. I can look not just the families of this country, but the nation in the eye and say, I did not mislead this country. I made the decision in good faith on the information I had at the time. And I believe that it is better that we took that decision. I acknowledge all the problems that came with that decision. I acknowledge the mistakes and accept responsibility for them. What I cannot do and will not do is say I believe we took the wrong decision. Paul, you were um, one of the journalists locked in a room yesterday morning with 2.6 million words from Sir John Chilcott. How many did you read? Quite a few. I I couldn't count them, but uh, certainly the executive summary, which... Believe it or not, they were quite canny, the Cabinet Office, when they arranged this lock-in, which is an embargoed first look or preview at the Chilcot report to help us do our job. It's very good of them. They did a, a, a run-through, a read-through of the exec summary, and it took them two and a half hours to read that alone. Well, they read it out to They you. read it th- themselves beforehand as a, as a dry run. Right. And they worked out it would take two and a half hours to read, and therefore they needed three hours for journalists at least to, to have in advance to look at it. So it's very good of them to do that. Yeah. But it did feel like a, a sort of um, a very, very heavy exam. Uh, there were lots of in this, you know, airless room up in the QE2 centre in the centre of London, lots of the world's media all allowed to sit down and pour through this summary and Chilcott's opening statement. And did you divvy up with other journalists you say right you take this bit you take that bit or did you just think no I'm in it for myself no every journalist team had their their own teams there and you just had to try and make the best of it what you could so we had 
all the volumes there. There were 12 volumes behind us, and we could pick and choose anything we wanted. They were very useful, and there's, there's a sort of guide to w what to look for in the, in the summary. But the key thing is that everybody in that room could tell straight away, straight away from Chilcott's statement that he really did mean business. This would not, not be a whitewash. Yeah. This was the real deal, and it was detailed, authoritative. Some, in some places, kind of boring, but boringly good, um, because it had all that sort of rigor of years and years of testimony, years and years of this evidence being gone over. When you, you say it's not a whitewash, but there, it also wasn't, and I'm going to use the expression used at the time, there wasn't a smoking gun as of yet. There wasn't a Tony Blair lied moment, was there? It came close, but... There wasn't. Yeah, but I think actually everyone now acknowledges looking for the suggestion that Blair quotes lied is kind of a, a cul-de-sac, really. It's much bigger than this. Uh, it, it's your definition of misled rather than lied, whether or not there wasn't any deliberate deception. There's no question about that. But it's it was the exaggerated use of language. It was that that, that time, the passion, the, the, the rush to war, despite Blair saying it wasn't a rush to war. It was clear there was a scramble in Whitehall. Get me any bit of evidence that backs up this idea of WMD in Iraq. I think that's interesting, isn't it? The idea that we're looking for whether he lied or not, as if that's the crucial thing. I mean, if the idea that he was massively wrong but didn't lie, so that makes it okay. I think making such a big blunder in so many little ways and big ways that that's the issue and that's what the Chilka report if, if you sign up to what it says that's what it shows I mean the fact he didn't you know technically lie does that actually matter exactly telling yeah. the truth and being wrong is actually still quite important yeah and that that was what where Chilcot was quite hmm. damning that the whole thing was a, a miscalculation that it didn't uh, give the weapons inspectors enough time. It wasn't seeing war as a last resort. It was overestimating Blair's influence with the Bush regime. There were lots and lots of things that we all kind of knew and suspected, but here it is, the official history in black and white. And for Tony Blair, those memos, uh, particularly the one that, that Chilcott highlighted about, we'll, I'm with you, whatever, uh, will go down now on his ep political epitaph. There's no question that, that that sums up his relationship with Bush. Did we, learn, sorry, no. say, did we learn anything new from this? Because we all thought, we, I mean, we had a Butler report, didn't we, done a few years ago, and it talked about the intelligence that led us into the war. And that said something along the lines of, you know, the intelligence was stretched to its utmost bit of believability, but it was just, just on the right side of, of not being sort of mis misused. We knew that there was no WMD. We knew what a catastrophe it's been afterwards. Blair himself has been saying sorry for the intelligence for the past five years. What did we actually learn that was new from this? I think what you get from this is the rigour of detailed inquiry with all the senior players in one place by the same team. It, it's it's a, an official history in that sense. And yes, I mean, I'm, I'm a boring anorak student of things like the Butler Inquiry and the Hutton Inquiry. I haven't been to every day of the, certainly the Hutton Inquiry and having gone over all the detail of this. And I can tell you there were new things yesterday. Right. There were new things like this ridiculous idea that we had MI6 were relying on this crummy source in Iraq who thought that you could store chemical weapons in glass jars because he'd seen it on the Hollywood movie The Rock. That was a brand new bit of detail. <laughs> wow. A brand new bit of detail. 
And what we didn't know was that MI6 had failed to recall that evidence quickly enough. We knew what roughly that something had gone wrong in that area, but we didn't know the detail. We got that. We didn't know the detail of how Blair set himself up as judge and jury and star witness and the whole idea of whether or not the war was legal under international law. He effectively made himself the, the jury and judge on that by saying, well, I, I've decided late one night in the den up in Downing Street... Um, yeah, I think Saddam is in material breach. Sure, this, for me, was the key thing. This was the absolute one of the key things to me. Was the executive summary said this, that the Attorney General says to Blair, we need to know that Saddam's breached Resolution 1441. Blair said, yes, he has. And no justification was given, no evidence was given, no idea of how Blair made the decision, how we'd breached yeah. it. And that was considered the basis. And, and I just thought, that when I saw that, I couldn't believe That's it. That's why I think Justice um, uh, Chilcott has done us all a service and he's uh, gone some way to finding a kind of justice in the whole um, Iraq f- imbroglio. Because... He's done something that people haven't done before, which is draw the threads together in one place. And that's one example where he says Blair's answer to that crucial question was, quotes perfunctory. It's perfunctory. You know, he doesn't give any explanation. There's no documentation. Nothing's written down about how yeah. he came to that uh, conclusion. And yet that was the pivot on which we went to war. And not many people were aware of that. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Like this report now probably will become a kind of definitive history of what happened and how, how Chilcot has now changed. Remember, you know, before this, pub- this came out, the Chilcot inquiry and Chilcot himself were seen as this kind of this long-winded, why is it taking so long? It was almost a joke, wasn't it? Like what's taken longer than the Chilcot inquiry, this seven-year report? This morning, Tony Blair was interviewed on the Today programme, and the length of time the report took to produce was used as evidence of its rigour, as evidence of its importance. It was put to Blair, you're saying you don't agree with this or this, but this took so long to put together, it shows the depth they went into. So actually, the length of time it took to produce, kind of in a, way, in a way, lends it weight. Yeah, and one of the... Literal th- weight. Well, yeah, yeah. It's very heavy. <laughs> I brought volumes, some yeah. copies back. Um, one of the reasons, too, don't forget, that it took so long to actually be published was because Whitehall didn't want those private mm. memos between Blair and Bush published. Um, and to his great credit, and to the inquiry's great credit, they stuck to their gun and said, right, we're not going to do this. We're sticking and we're digging in. We've got to insist that these are made transparent. And they won that battle with Whitehall, with Jeremy Haywood, with Cameron. They won that battle. And it's quite an impressive battle because on the day itself, that really led the news, those those memos. People, all right, there'd been the hints of them. Andrew Rawnsley's book had talked about one of the key memos. But that's not the point. People could see with their own eyes in black and white how Blair addressed Bush, how that relationship developed what questions he put to him. They could see it for themselves. And I thought that was, a, again, a public service. And that was quite impressive. And a Blair Today on the Today programme had the great defence of whenever a point was put to him, Chilcott says this. He went, well, actually, if you go and look through the whole report, I think what you finally meant to say was, he was trying to dilute it and try and say, well, you know, you need to look at the context, you know. And, of course, no one's had a chance to read the whole report yet. So that was a bit... Well, there'll be more stories coming out of it. Absolutely. I mean, I'm looking forward to the the Sundays. I was in the press conference yesterday, the marathon press conference that Blair gave lasted almost two hours. We heard a a clip of it there. And when he walked in, he looked very, very stern. Eyes were red. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, he's really, really affected him. And then as it went on, you know, he got some of his statesman-like quality about it. Some people said... The mask slipped is one, you know, claim on Twitter people were saying. And it was and he was back to his sort of old self of just being this this fantastic self belief. 
Because he does believe he was right, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's interesting. But you, so, watching it on television in, and from the office, you saw he, his voice did crack a bit. It did look a bit kind of more weary than previous mm. occasions defending the war. But as you say, the more he spoke, the more he remembered, oh, no, but I think I'm right. Exactly. Again, on today, this morning, he was back to thinking, I'm not going to apologise for something that I don't think was wrong. And I think there's, there's, a, there's a couple of bits in Blair's press comments which I just wanted to pick up briefly. One of the things he kept criticising Chilcott for was that Chilcott never said, well, what would have happened if, I didn't, if we didn't invade Iraq? Well, Chilcott Port was not to, there to investigate hypotheticals and investigate what actually happened. So I don't think that's legitimate criticism. I think he's trying to smear the Chilcott Report a little bit with, with that. I don't think that's right. The other thing is he contradicts himself because he says... If we hadn't gone in, Saddam Hussein would still be there and what would have happened in the Arab Spring if had another Syria. But then he also says, if we hadn't gone in, America would have gone in anyway. So you can't have it both ways. And I think there's all these, there is a number of kind of contradictions and paradoxes in the way that Blair tries to get around this, which I think just further fuels the idea that we were taken in not being told exactly why. But one thing I do agree with him in is you get rid of all the lives and that kind of thing. You get down to boil it down to the, were we right to go into Iraq? And I think the majority of people now would say no. I think Tony Blair's in the minority. There there is that. But however, I think one thing that has been missing from the whole debate um, yesterday in particular were Iraqi voices. And Mm. I think a lot in the media, uh, ourselves included, have have been guilty of not listening to those Iraqis who wanted to get rid of Saddam. The Kurds, for example. Uh, Not just the Kurds, the majority of the country when it comes to the Shia um, you know, who welcomed his fall. And it would have just been nice to... Uh, Blair missed the trick there, I thought, in, right. in citing Iraqis who, who actually, for good or ill, despite the chaos, would rather be in the situation they are now than being under a dictator. And I thought that's, you know, a slight missed trick for Miss. The interesting thing about Blair's body language and, and you know, him almost crying at the beginning of his, his evidence is it's just... A real sad indictment on where we are in politics now that people didn't even think his tears were genuine, that he'd faked them, that he'd practiced it in the mirror beforehand, and therefore that's why he easily went into this routine defense, the sort of PM mode that he went into Mm. after about 15 minutes and didn't shift from. And it says something about us and about him that people couldn't even believe that he was genuinely crying. There was a wonderful moment just as he left when he said, thank you, goodbye, that'll do. And he walked out of the room and he left on the table a copy of the Chilcot Report executive summary with his notes of it sticking out, sort of slightly thumb, thumb, uh, thumbed already, dogged already, just left there. And I really wanted to get up and grab <laughs> it to see what the notes out. were. One of his aides took it, <laughs> one of his didn't they? Took it, <laughs> well, one sentence ringed with, oh, got me here. Exactly, but I just <laughs> like the idea that he couldn't even take it with him. He's just like... It's done well, now. at one stage, I think he even had the, the crazy, P, in PR terms, idea of him being photographed, sitting down, looking at the report. And uh, uh, and I think they, they then realised that wouldn't look good. It would look very Al- Alan Partridge that, you know, actually... Oh, Bouncing what, back. It, it, actually, it says here, I'm all right. You know. Yeah. Um, it's quiz time. Quiz? We Great. love the quiz. Yeah, I thought it was a bit low-key this day. We're a bit lonely today. Let's get it up. Okay. Uh, What's the quiz, Owen? The quiz is, it's called, well, it's about the length of the Chilcot Report, right, in terms of it to, to produce. Is this a quiz about how long some things are? Yeah. Excellent. I said earlier when it was eight, it was seven years, I was wrong. It was 2,579 days from the date of announcement, which is the 15th of June 2009, to the date uh, of it was publication, 6th of July 2016. So I'm going to give you some things, and you've got to tell me whether these lasted longer okay. than the yep. Chilcot report. Yep. And so it's called Chilcot or Chill Not. 
Right. That's not bad. I did start. I mean, so longer than seven years. Longer than, than yeah. The, the name of the quiz is. But I started no, with the name and went backwards this yeah, time. So okay. chill cut or chill not. Okay. So you got to tell me, did this last longer? Was so chill cut is longer or? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the dates between the release of Star Wars. Yeah. And Return of the Jedi. Oh. Was that a longer time period than the chill cut report? Star Wars and Return of the Jedi. <sighs> Oh, I reckon that must be yeah, that's about six years. I think that's that's chill not. I'm gonna say chill cot to be different. It is chill not. It was six years. Twenty fifth of May seventy seven for Star Wars, twenty fifth of May eighty three for Return of the Jedi. <laughs> yeah. okay. Bobby Robson as England manager. Ooh, that's yeah. good. Good then. He was manager in eighty six, manager in nineteen ninety, so oh, Chill Cot. <laughs> chill Cot, okay, you're saying chill cot. I'm gonna say that's six years as well. I think, I think that's chill, chill, chill. Not. I think that's shorter than chill cut. It is. No, chill, chill. What? No, chill. <laughs> not. It's longer. It's longer. Chill it's cop. eight years. No, chill cut was. It's chill. Not. It's eight years, right? right. That sound guy. Right now. now even John's confused. <laughs> right. So he he was England manager. He started on seventh July nineteen eighty two. Eighty two. And you oh, left fourth July nineteen ninety because he effectively stopped the day of the semi final. We lost Jimmy. Roger Federer, Wimbledon champion, in that unbroken but, period. So he's saying was he champion for longer than seven years in a? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Consistently um, unbroken champion. Let me know tennis that well. Uh, chill not. Chill say. not. Which one was that again? That's the one that's shorter than. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, chill not. Yeah, chill not. okay. Yeah. I'd say the same. <laughs> chill not. Uh, you're right. It was 1,827 days, 6 July 2003 to 6 July 2008. Wow. I lost Stefan Uh The last one, the time from the Beatles' first number one single in the UK to the time of their last number oh. one single in the UK. Oh, that's definitely longer than, than the You say cut. that, though. You never... I'm going to Come say, on, I get it's a trick. I'm going to say chill not. I'm going to say, I reckon it's those things where you think they're around 63 to 70. Oh, 63 to 70, isn't it? So it's seven years, roughly, just about. What are you saying? I'm saying it's definitely longer than Chilcot. Shorter than Chilcot. Yes. Oh, First UK stat. number one was From Me to You, 2nd of May, 1963. Their last UK number one was June the 4th, 1969. Nice. Bonus point if you can tell me which song it was. Uh, uh, Long and Winding Road? No. no. Uh, I, I the last number I, one? The last UK number one. The Yoko Ono? Yeah. Um, Ballad of John and Yoko. Ballad of John It's a rubbish Yoko. song. Yeah. I know. Lady number, number two. So there we are. So that was uh, Chill Cut or Chill Cut. <laughs> Excellent. I'd say massively less successful than Chill Cut Report itself. Sorry about that. Felt like it was longer. Speaking of things that should not be longer, the Labour Rebellion. Yeah. I mean... What's going on with that? Because I thought Blair made this point yesterday that he had all these, all the British and American armed forces ready to go to invade Iraq and he couldn't pull them back. Ooh. And I feel like the Labour Party merged <laughs> everyone to the theatre of war and are now pulling back. So we not pull. You, you've been keeping abreast of this. Are we, well, why is Jeremy Corbyn still there? What's going on? Uh, the, the so-called chicken coup. Yeah, I like that. Or, 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 which involves, unfortunately, pronouncing the P. So it doesn't quite chicken, work. Chicken, chicken coup. coup. But anyway... Yeah. Um, is is a clocking, all the Corbynistas think, because they think that Angela Eagle and Owen Smith Continuing the birth Watson theme there, are all Eagle. backing off. Actually, I think what's happened is it, they're not backing off. What they're desperately trying to do is get the unions involved in the outcome. 
And today, as we stand now, as we're recording this, it looks like there's going to be more union negotiations over the weekend. Between who? With Tom Watson. Right. And Owen Smith last night went in to see Jeremy Corbyn. Owen Smith went in to see Len McCluskey. And, um, and Angela Eagles had conversations. So th- it's ongoing. It's not dead. It's not in the deep freeze. There's still stuff going on. The question is, even if they all come to some kind of agreement, even if the trade unions come down and decide miraculously, Len McCluskey says, actually, yeah, I'll, I'll go to Jeremy and tell him he's got to go, which is very, very implausible. Mm. Some unions, however, may do that. Um, but even if they do that, Jeremy Corbyn is not in any mood to go. No, no. So, uh, His response to the Chilgrit report yesterday did not strike me as a man, this is my final hurrah. I've never seen him happier in PMQs than the PMQs before the... He, great, he, he was I loving it, wasn't he? He did a great PMQs. Yeah. Unfortunately, no one report. No, we didn't really get a lot of traction because of Chilgrit. Um, he did quite a good PMQs. He really nailed Cameron. He was heckled by uh, Ian Austin, though, during Jim, the yeah. Chilcot, wasn't yeah. he? Um, and that's just. Do a, we think that's why he didn't um, apologise for the war? Sorry, go back to Chilcot again, because yeah. obviously he didn't do that in the Commons. In the Commons, he kind of shied away from saying sorry on the path of the Labour Party. He did it in his speech later, but to avoid, I suppose, any. I think it, also that's why he didn't name Blair either mm. in the Commons or in his speech, because he can see just how toxic that issue is for himself. That if he gets into the territory of talking about Blair and impeachment and war crimes and all this stuff, which which implies he's not going to go, because if he's going yeah. to quit, you wouldn't care, would you? You think, Absolutely. well, this is my moment. Yeah. I mean, yeah. is a big uh, is a big thing for me. If I'm going to quit in a, in a few days' yeah. time, I will mention Blair. But I will do because why? Why? What matters? What I've got to lose? But it also shows you how he, he realizes how precarious his position still mm. is, though, because he doesn't want to give his enemies any further ammunition to say, ah, yet another reason to mm. get rid of Corbyn because he's dumping on a former leader mm. who for good or ill, and most of the party these days think it was for ill, that invasion, um, but for good or ill, you don't dump on your former leader. Mm. Um, and, you know, having said that, he will say, his supporters will say, well, former leaders are dumping on him. Look at Neil Kinnock, you know. So I still can't, we, none of us can get away from this, you know, uh, immovable... Uh, object and the irresistible force problem that, 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 that I can't see how the standoff is resolved. We're going to have to wrap this up because uh, we're going to rush back down to Parliament because we are recording this. It is now quarter to four and they're going to announce the um, conclusion of this stage of the Tory leadership contest very soon where we're going to find out who's facing Theresa May. Is it Michael Grove or Andrea Ledson? And what do we think the party members are going to like? Exactly. I mean, what do you... <sighs> Tory members, everyone, there's just notion they're slightly more to the right, perhaps, than the Tory parliamentary party, and therefore someone like Andrew Ledson would play well with them. Um, she's not, she abstained on gay marriage and came out today and said that she still doesn't really back it. Ned, yeah, she, she, she got kind of a, I had a bizarre interview to ITV where she said she wasn't happy with the gay marriage bill. Um, she thinks that uh, marriage should be just between man and woman and civil partners should be for... Uh, for gay couples but in the same interview she also said she supports gay marriage so it's not it wasn't quite clear what what was going on there it was quite a speech was it was was slightly confusing to quite get to what she was saying as you said she abstained in the vote she kind of but she voted both ways she voted for gay marriage to support like bisexual marriage then (laughs) to gay people who were you know love each other want to be married and she voted against it for Christians who feel that gay marriage undermines their them, I, I think just, it, all so just, it, it just shows how inexperienced yeah. she is in dealing with the media and perhaps in dealing with government. Because, you know, it's extraordinary that we're talking about issues like that when we're not electing just the leader of the opposition, we're electing the Prime Minister mm. or other those Tory MPs uh, are. And, you know, to get, even get into issues of, you know, what is your CV? Have you faked your CV? All seems just so 
unseemly and unprime ministerial that it that Gove's lot will be absolutely delighted that at least those questions are out. And there. I think it's interesting with that gay marriage answer. I mean, obviously, if the the suggestion is you know the Tory grassroots would prefer someone who isn't that happy with gay marriage, but fine. But it was the fact the interview was a bit confusing. That's something that someone like Theresa May and Gove can exploit rather than the issue itself. It's saying you know, we're more, in this kind of unsettled time, particularly if you're a Remainer like Theresa May, you can say Ledsom's a Brexiter, but. I know yeah. what I'm doing. And, it's, and the no time for novice thing is quite powerful. I mean, don't forget all these comparisons with Margaret Thatcher. But one thing you can say about Thatcher is she was crystal clear about everything she believed. Even in 1975, when she was a different political animal in some ways, she was still clear. She had Pro-European. Clari- clarity yeah. of message. There was no nonsense. And, you know, that's the problem if you're not, if you're not that experienced in dealing with the media. And also, as you said, 75, you're electing leader of the opposition. When David Cameron stood, and there was questions about, you know, his, um, how can I phrase this about getting drug sued? Drug use. Drug use, potential drug use in the past. Thanks, Paul. That's Paul <laughs> War, by the way. Uh, that was when electing a leader of the opposition, and you got a couple of years to shape, and blah, blah, blah. Now it's a prime minister they're voting. And a lot of Tory MPs I spoke to said that we need an oven-ready politician, and that is why they, they are backing Theresa May. We shall wait to see what happens. Uh, next time we record this podcast, next week, we should have with us Martha Gill, and our new recruit. Absolutely. And we Can't should wait know, for that And moment. we should know who's going to be uh, facing Tory members. One, one final point we should make, though, about the Tory leadership. We should learn a bit of humility as political journalists. Whoa. Loads of Hang on. journalists. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> they, got the, they got the general election wrong. They got the Brexit vote wrong, apart from a few of us. Um, but Unbelievable. And we may learn well... Learn some humility. Like yeah. Jeremy Corbyn's election, everyone got wrong. Oh, Maybe Andrea Leadsom is going to turn out to be Jeremy Corbyn of this Tory leadership race. She can blow away Theresa May, despite, oh, absolutely. Everyone, yeah, despite yeah, yeah. everyone's predictions. Maybe the membership out there wants something different. So we should just... Take a step back sometimes and think, well, you know, that maybe the members know better than we do. I really hope by the time it's this podcast, Michael goes in the final two. <laughs> just, just then I can replay that next week. <laughs> Thanks so much, everyone. See you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.